Welcome to the Legends of Master Show, everyone. I'm your host, Tom Wheeler, and I am very excited to introduce our guest today. He is a lifetime veteran actor, writer, and director, featured in TV, movies, and video games. Welcome to the show, the legendary John Grise. Hello, sir. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, absolute pleasure. Like I said, I've been a massive fan of yours for a long, long time. And I honestly, I like to just kind of kick things off. Well, you uh, must you must stay up late and watch a lot of garbage. You're <laughs> you hey, the best garbage, right? <laughs> hey, listen, garbage is fun. You know, it doesn't have to. I mean, I'm not trying to be judgmental of it, but sometimes it's I've done some things that are that are that are I, I would have probably deemed them in their day pretty crappy. Sometimes they manage to they get they get kind of they become well, to use a phrase, they they become legendary, though they they are probably more because they're as encapsulated in a special time period that people feel nostalgic about. Uh, that's a great way to word it. Very very true. Um, and I guess you know when you're making something, sometimes you might you might be able to tell in the script, but on set sometimes you probably can't tell until you actually see like the finished product. In many cases, right? I I think you know the. I mean, there is some validity to that. I think as I've gotten a little bit more experienced, as I've gotten older, I can tell pretty well how things are going as it's going. I do remember while I was doing Napoleon Dynamite, contacting somebody from United Artists and saying, I got a film, I'm working on it, I've only worked two days, but I have a feeling this film's gonna do something. And uh, she is forever regretting that she didn't call me back when I left her the message. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's, put it, let's put it that way. Um, you know, I, I'd love to actually uh, dive in because I thought it was uh, very interesting. A lot of people obviously know you from some of your major roles, but uh, kick off some thing, things here with your sort of your origin story, so to speak, because uh, very interesting. Um, wait, wait, parents... are, you getting, are you getting religious or something? No. Oh, <laughs> hallelujah. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, but uh, like your mom, uh, Mary Eleanor Monday, she was an actress. Yeah. Uh, your dad, famously, Tom Grise, uh, was a popular writer, director, and, and producer, and actually, uh, director of one of the best Westerns ever and your film debut with uh, Will Penny in 1967. Yeah. Crazy, right? That's an amazing yeah. story. Yeah. My, my, uh, yeah, my father, that was his, a big break for him to get to do that movie at Paramount. And, wow. um, uh, what had happened was I had my tooth knocked out and, uh, oh. had to go to the dentist and my father was, we were, we had just, I just moved, you know, we had just moved from New York to Los Angeles and we were renting a house oh. by the beach. And uh, my father was on his way into Paramount and, you know, uh, to go to work during the day. And it was obviously, a, it's a long drive from the beach all the way into to the city, you know. Yeah. Uh, particularly where we were, we were up at Topanga Beach and, and back then it was a private beach, an amazing, uh, incredible enclave. A yeah. great neighborhood, and it was, uh, it's been, it was, you know, the city claimed eminent domain and tore all the houses down, but, and made it a public beach. But it was a, an amazing enclave. And, wow. and, uh, but he, he said, I'll take him to the dentist, but I'm, you know, he's got to come with me to the studio. I'm not going to bring him back to go to school and all that other stuff. So, okay. I went to the studio with my father, and being one of four boys, uh, you know, my dad was, feverishly typing his shooting draft to get it done. Wow. 
and um, I was sitting there with him and I was asking questions and talking to him and saying all kinds of things. And he's finally stopped and said, John, I can't talk to you now. And, you know, of course, <laughs> I, you know, to be one of four boys and to get your father alone for the day was kind of an amazing thing. He was always busy. So he, yeah. he was he was not always there. So for me to be able to hang with my my pops and just like, yeah, well, and then he's then he stops me and he's like, dude, you, you got to go. <laughs> you got to go outside. They're shooting. There's nobody shooting on the Western street. There was a street they called the Bonanza street. He said, okay. go on out there, go play on the street. If anybody asks, just tell them you're here with me. Don't break <laughs> any windows. Don't steal anything because, you know, we always felt like movie sets, everything was expendable because my father used to do combat and we'd go on the set while that film, that TV show and things were getting blown up and broken. And it was like, oh, oh yeah, you could throw rocks for the windows. I mean, you know, like we didn't quite, it didn't, it didn't compute that. No, that meant money. That was like, you had to like take care of it. Anyway. Uh, so I, I sauntered out of his office and was walking down the hall and into the main office building two guys walked up to me and they said, are, are you here with Tommy? And I said, yeah. And they said, come into our office. And it was, um, it was uh, Walter Seltzer and Fred Engel, the two producers. And they wow. basically sat me down in the, the chair and they started talking to me. And then of course realized that, oh, you're his son. They thought I was <laughs> a, a kid there to read. Oh, they, wow. They didn't know that I was his son. Because they'd never met me before. I'd never met them before. Man. And, uh, and so uh, they started asking me all kinds of questions. And they offered me a Coca-Cola, which at that time I was not allowed to have. And uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, they were asking me questions about girls, about school, about sports, whatever. Yeah. And I was happy to have an audience just to sit and chat with somebody. And then I could hear my father, he was in the next office and he was typing away. Of course, the last thing my father had said when I walked out was don't get into any trouble. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and sure enough, I could hear him literally through the, the, the adjoining door, which was closed, he was typing. And it was, you know, back in the day where, you know, nowadays a lot of people think, well, why, how, why would it be loud? It's a computer, but it wasn't a computer. Obviously it was a, he was oh. a typewriter, it was clacking away. And uh, Man. so, Long story short, um, they called him in and said, Tommy, we got the kid. And he came running in and he's like, no way. He goes, That's, he's my son. He's not an actor. He's an idiot. <laughs> oh, man. But they convinced him to screen test me. And, and I guess there was some believability because I didn't know, I didn't know how to act. I just knew how to be the person, I guess, you know. So that's absolutely amazing. I mean, what are the odds, right? <laughs> yeah, to totally random, totally random. And, 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 uh, and it was an amazing experience to be able to have, particularly because my, my father, you know, 10 years later was dead, you know, yeah, so dude. to be an eight year old kid and to have that special time uh, now obviously means considerably more because we were on location together. And even though we didn't really hang out at night, I mean, I've spent yeah. most of my time with Joan Hackett, but he would be, he would be, he wasn't far away because there was a room that they reserved for the, for all the wranglers and the drivers to play cards. And my dad would be in there. They'd all be gambling, you know, <laughs> that's absolutely amazing story. Uh, and, and uh, that, that was the other thing, like you were about, 
10 years old around this time, right? right no, there? no, I was not. I just had turned nine. Wow, just turned nine. And, and I mean, for especially first film, it was an all-star cast. I mean, I, Charles Heston, Joan Hackett. Yeah, I think I got the job when I was eight. Uh, or, or, or I was just before my birthday. So then I turned nine while I was, yeah. That's unbelievable. And and on stream with all these like legendary actors, uh, especially at a young age, uh, you know, how much that impact you while filming? I mean, there's, if I recall, there's some uh, very uh, moving moments. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, you know, it was weird because I didn't really, I never, I never was, uh, my mind was not developed enough really to frame exactly what was, who these people were. I mean, I knew that they were, yeah, I'd watched Charlton Heston on movies and I, and, and uh, Donald Pleasance and, you know, yeah. but I, I, I didn't, I didn't have the real capacity to know that, oh, I'm in a movie with all these people, you know, all I remember is when I, we finally came to P Paramount, we were on location for the first few months and then came to Paramount to shoot the last of it. I remember look sitting in the commissary and seeing all these famous people on the wall and recognizing a couple of the people that I was working with and saying, Hey, could you put my picture up there too? You know, like I, <laughs> I, just, I had no idea what celebrity was or any of that stuff. It was absolutely off my, off my radar. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. but, but it was, it, it was an amazing experience and point of fact, the emotion you know, there's a there's a there's a moment where I have to run in and give Charlton Heston a big hug. Yeah. And, and we're in the cabin, and it's Christmas, and and uh, I I I was overwhelmed with emotion in that moment that I had to speak lines from off camera, and I was crying. I I was so wow. moved to tears by that thing, but I wanted, but I was scared to death to let it be seen. I hid it, you know. Uh, which was actually better because had I been crying, it would have been totally wrong for the scene. I'm just supposed yeah. to get a hug and then, and then go, you know, is it really almost Christmas? You know, but, but I was absolutely in tears. So, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And there's something to be said. I mean, you know, especially like a play or something live or in person or on set versus uh, it's so powerful in, in person compared to going across the screen. And if it hits it right, I mean, the audience feels it even though they're on the other side of a, in a movie I guess, theater. Or something. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I think there was an awkwardness to my hug, which I, I remember seeing afterwards thinking, you know, I hope nobody recognizes that I'm just really, you know, as a kid, you don't want people to see you cry, you know? And, right. I'm, and I'm thinking, I hope nobody knows. That. I'm like crying there. I'm hugging him. And in my, the way my face is kind of moving side to side on his belly, I'm like trying to hide. And I'm not, I don't really know what I was doing, but I do know that it, that when I saw it at the screening as I was 10 years old and looking at it going, God, I hope nobody recognizes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. And, yeah. and you have an interesting perspective too, because, you know, being a child actor and obviously growing up, uh, there are, there are a lot of like trials and tribulations associated with that transition. And I want to know what was it like for you kind of like finding your own uh, stride or own voice in acting? Well, I don't know. I think it's like a golf game. I think every actor is always looking for it. That's why, you know, even though actors kind of display a certain confidence, I think when they get together and they, and you know, nobody's in the room, <laughs> so to yeah. speak, they can all kind of share those moments that, that, that the terror of, 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 of 
you know, figuring your way out of any forest. I mean, you know, the fact is every time you, you, you know, approach a role, it's, it's, there's a certain amount of terror that goes into what am I going to do with this? You know, it's like, I once heard judge Reinhold describe it as a, it's a dog trying to find out where to hide his bone. You know, I mean, it's really, it's kind of what happens when you, it is, it's a truth. You get, you know, you, there, there are many terms that, that describe it. I mean, I guess Noel Coward came up with the term finding your umbrella. Uh, You know, you, you, there are things their actors go through that yes, they display a certain confidence, but I, I will say, um, and there was another point that I was, gonna say about oh well as a child i um i this thing that protected me really was a my parents were realistic very grounded and um they left it up to me although i sensed that even if i said hey i really want to continue doing this they probably would have said no but they left it up to me to decide because they could tell I, I was not interested in it at that age. And I got offered a, oh. a lot of movies. I got offered the Re- the Reavers with Steve McQueen. I got offered the Cowboys with John Wayne. Man. And I turned everything down. I turned everything that came to me after that movie down because I had three older brothers and I didn't want to be, I didn't want to stand out. I wanted to be just part oh. of the game, you know? Oh, that, that that's amazing though. And, and, and like you said, like way more grounded. Um, yeah, and I want to kind of just kind of uh, flip around here a little bit because you're in one of my all-time favorite movies, and that is Real Genius. Oh yeah, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, Val Kilmer. Uh, you know, I, I, a question: I, How do you propose uh, Laszlo Holyfield, the amazing genius living in the basement in his own lair? Uh, in your mind, uh, did Laszlo live happily ever after after winning the sweepstakes? Come on. Uh, I think the the burden of Laszlo, which was why I think I got the job, because I think everybody else that read, there were a lot of people that read for that part. And I will tell you that I was not called to read for that part. I was called to read for the part that Robert Prescott so brilliantly played uh, of Kent. And uh, and Robert Prescott is just, uh, I can't say enough good about him as an actor. He's absolutely brilliant. And uh, and should be working all the time. Uh, and last thing I saw him in was uh, uh, Michael Clayton, and he played one of the hitmen. Yeah, he's amazing, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, you know they they had called to, to, because I I was going through a phase where I was not reading for comedy so much as I was reading for bad guys. You know. Yeah. And so somehow they saw me as this character and. And when I read the script, I immediately connected with Laszlo. And I think what got me the job of Laszlo, and, and this is a long roundabout way of answering your question. Yeah. But Laszlo is tortured by what he knows. And yes. so no matter, to answer your question before I go into the, the getting the job, I think that um, what I sensed from Laszlo was that this man could never be happy. Because Interesting. that's why he lived in the basement. Because yeah, he right. he knows what he knows, and what he knows is too scary for everybody else to digest. And being as smart as he is, so even though he wins the prize and he gets the girl and he goes, he, he it's he's you know in a weird way I I kind of I I remember having a discussion with Martha Coolidge that 
is that really the way you want to have like this guy who's a very conscientious, very concerned, very, you know, this is kind of an anti-war film at the end of an era of yeah. anti-war films because everything after that became very pro-war. Right. I said, do you want to have this character? I mean, isn't it, I mean, maybe it was prescient at the time to kind of throw off the mantle of concern and just engage in, you know, just rank materialism and, you know, go with yeah. the beautiful girl and get the big Winnebago and put on the Hawaiian shirt and go, yeah, you know, I just want to go party and have fun. I mean, you know, you know, cause we, ha we did discuss that considerably and, and I, I'm proud of the fact that I brought that up with her and I, and, and yeah. she was like, you know, you're giving me, you're giving me food for thought here because mm -hmm. it is something that is, you know, uh, important but regardless at the end of the day it was a comedy and it was a big studio film and it had to have kind of a happy uplifting kind of thing and i and you know we all embraced it and said yeah i get it i'm not gonna i'm not gonna change the script i mean i'm my i'm here i'm i'm the meat puppet i'm just coming here right. to do what I'm supposed to do. but but uh you know um yes so i don't think in my estimation if i were to be the guy, if I was to be the author of Laszlo, if we were yeah. to write the book post Real Genius, I would say no. He, uh, he, 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 his causes are, are, are mounting and, and, uh, and he's becoming more and more of an underdog. So, yeah. but at the same time, uh, you know, I think that that was that perspective that got me the job because I think most people came in and read and they read kind of your cliche genius, you know, where they, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of, I, I don't know what you would call them, poindexters or whatever, you know, yeah. rules or whatever. And I didn't see him as that at all. I saw him as a guy who was just so tortured by knowing what he knew. And that's why he was so painfully shy and so painfully afraid to have relationships with people because he had so much empathy that he could almost imagine the world through their eyes, you know? Interesting. And, and yeah, every time you talk, you always, you always felt like in his head, the inner workings, there's so much more weight to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 I was, that was kind of the, an epiphany for me as an actor. It was like the first time I thought I'm getting it. I'm figuring this out, you know? Awesome. Awesome. And not to mention you played, the iconic role of Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. Um, but you were, at that time, you were pretty uh, career-changing moments. Uh, can you kind of go into that and and how you even got involved in that film? I, you've done some research. I, I had quit acting, actually. I had done four years on a TV show called The Pretender. Yeah. Uh, which uh, was kind of a Saturday night, you know, if you if you had any kind of a life, you missed it because it was coming on at like eight o'clock on Saturday night. Most people were out eating or getting ready to go out in the town or whatever. Uh, yeah. So uh, I quit and I, I thought I'm, I'm going to make this transition. I'm going to write and direct and, and, and do this. You know, I directed uh, music videos back in the nineties and, mm -hmm. And I, you know, mostly rap videos for Priority Records, and then, wow. and then, and then I, I directed it. You know, I, I I directed a couple of short films, and I directed a couple of, an episode of uh, of The Pretender and another TV show. I did another show, and so I was a DGA member. And I thought, okay, now that I'm a DGA member, a Directors Guild member, it's time for me to make the transition, follow my father's footsteps. You know, whatever it is, wow. uh, my calling is, and I 
I, I called my agent, Susan Smith, uh, who was a, a legendary agent. She's now passed away, but she was like, I, I'm with your brother. If you really feel you got to do this, my hat's off to you. And so I kind of disappeared. And uh, all of a sudden, my phone rang one day in the office while I was writing. And Jory White's, a casting director that I'd known, and he always was a supporter and very, very, you know, open and communicative with me, didn't feel like he had to, you know, foment this this relationship, this divide between actor, casting director. A lot of casting yeah. directors back in the day almost had this standoffish thing about them because they felt like the actors were going to try and hump their leg or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so Jory called me and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm writing. What are you doing? He's like, I'm casting this movie called The Big Empty. Basically, we're cast. We're on location, and we had an actor fall out. Oh, man. And I want you to play this part. Would you play it? And I was like, well, is there any money? <laughs> you know, like, because now I wasn't making any money. He's like, there's some. It's not a lot. You know, there's a few, a couple thousand dollars. And I was like, all right, you know, let me read it sent me the script and I called back. I said, yeah, when do I show up? He goes, can you get here tomorrow? You know? And so <laughs> I jumped in the car and drove out to Baker, California. And I remember meeting everybody on the set and then thinking, gosh, I'm starting tomorrow. And I drove out to the middle of the desert and got out of my car and sat there and learned all my lines in the middle of the desert and, and, and rehearsed it like it was a stage anyway. Long story short, I got the job. I did the job. It was with John, a great little movie called The Big Empty with uh, uh, John Favreau, Kelsey Grammer, yes. uh, Daryl Hannah, a lot of Michael Beach, a lot of really good people, and um, or Adam Beach. Sorry, not Michael Beach. Adam Beach, and and um, um, and then you know, fast forward to I guess about six or seven months later when they were cutting the big empty, they were, they rented an office at Fox studios. You can rent offices at studios and not be affiliated with the, oh, you know, oh, with, with okay. the, with the thing you can, you know, a company can say, Hey, we want to rent an office. And, you know, then you get the, 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 the perks of being on the quote unquote Fox lot or whatever lot you rent an office on, you know? And so um, they were almost done cutting the movie and Jory Weitz was now working with Jared Hess on Napoleon Dynamite. And they put out a few offers to people to play Uncle Rico and nobody, I think, even read it, you know, because it was such a, you know, really, really independent movie. Mm -hmm. Very hard to get people to read scripts, you know. And and yeah. um, and, um, and then I guess Jory, Jory said, hey, there's a guy in this movie, The Big Empty. We have his scenes right here in this office because they were borrowing the office from The Big Empty editing because they were pretty much oh. done. They'd almost locked picture. And so the editor was there kind of cleaning stuff up in the other room and they were just using the office. They were, you know, Jory asked them, can we use your office? We're casting this low budget independent movie. It makes everybody feel really good. We're on the Fox lot, you know? Yeah. And so um, they looked at my footage and Jared has said, yeah, let's make an offer. So they just, you know, then I got the call again. And, and uh, by this time there was this guy who was kind of, being a manager towards me for me. And I would kind of, he called me one day and said, you don't have anybody. Can I at least manage you? And I was like, whatever you go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm probably most everything you send me, I'm going to say no. Cause I'm busy, you know? Yeah. And so uh, he called me and said, Hey, 
I don't think you're going to want to do this. They don't have any money. And, you know, I don't know what, who these people are. I don't know anything about them. And they're, you know, wow. and I said, well, you know, I'm going to read it because I, I don't, I like the underdog, you know, I like people that are struggling to get by. Yeah. I made most of my bread and butter in independent films. And so I read it and by page 16 or 15, I was laughing out loud and I called him back and I said, you tell him I'll show up and I'll drive myself there. And, <laughs> and that was it. And then I did, I got the job. Uh, that, that, that's so interesting. And, and, and yeah, I mean, you just never know. And, and not to mention like Jared has, I mean, he's, wasn't what known well at the time, but like I just I, at all, and I love I just love his unique uh, style of dialogue and storytelling. What were, what were your, you know, like you say, you're laughing out loud by like page fifteen or sixteen? What, what were your thoughts as you read the the whole script that first time? Uh, I thought, well, th number one, I thought, gosh, if this guy knows how to direct, uh, this is going to be really well because it, I I can you know one thing I could definitely discern is a good script and the script was so beautifully crafted and it's a testimony to Jared Hess's talent that people to this day whenever we do screen the film and people come and they ask how much improv and we're like 99% 99.9% scripted there might have been a couple of words here and there that that were improvised but 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 nothing worth talking about the script was so right. beautifully crafted that uh, it didn't need, it didn't, it, it was beautifully written. And so that much I could tell, uh, you know, but on the other, the flip side is the, obviously as a young director, uh, I, he sent me um, Peluca, you know, the short film, and I yeah, loved yeah. his sensibility. And I was like, oh, this, I think this kid's going to be great. And that literally while we were filming Napoleon Dynamite, he had his 23rd birthday. So when I say kid, <laughs> he really was a kid. Wow. Yeah, and he yeah. wrote it with his wife, Jerusha, by the way. I mean, you know, they literally, she wow. sat in his lap. That was one of the funniest questions I, I'd ever gotten at a Q&A, that we'd ever got at a Q&A. Um, they said, how's your writing process? How did you do this? How did you work on this? I mean, did Jared, did you write a few pages and then give it to Jerusha? And then she write the page, rewrite her. How did you do it? And she just came to the mic and said, pretty much sat in his lap the whole time <laughs> they wrote it together and you know she was in his lap and it was beautiful i love that <laughs> that's amazing you know and, and the reception was just so big in that and uh it's such such a well-done film i mean they, there was even a, a napoleon dynamite cartoon series and so many yeah. fans it, it really seemed as well like you, you just had a blast playing this character which raises the question uh is that a role that it, you know if the script obviously is good you know good and everything uh, is that a role you would like to do again? Well, it's a, it's an interesting thing because I think that also you're you, you know your that question kind of leans into about the sequel. You know, yeah. the, the question of a sequel was all always kind of there, and, and I think we all agreed not to do it. We we didn't think it would be. You know, the flame is never going to be quite as hot from twice burned coal, if you know what I mean. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we didn't want to do is be winking kind of at the audience because now everybody was kind of on the inside of the Napoleon dynamite world. And, you know, there, there's the, you know, we used to talk about that and, and I think Jared didn't want to be, um, you know, he wanted to assert himself also as a director who, who is capable of handling more than just that one subject. So he right. didn't want to do uh, the sequel right away. 
Um, I will say that I, I'm going to be very honest. I didn't like doing the cartoon personally. I know everybody okay. else. I, I didn't like doing the cartoon because I, I was not uh, happy with the way that I was being asked to play Uncle Rico. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I felt like everybody got to be themselves and be in their normal voice. And for whatever reason, uh, they wanted Uncle Rico to be really loud. And so I never got to speak as Uncle Rico. Uncle Rico, to me, in the cartoon was always like, he was always talking like that. He was always like, <laughs> like, I hated it. And I even had friends who knew me for years when they would see the cartoon. They'd say, was that you doing it or was that somebody else? Wow. They didn't really? know. <laughs> And I, and I really was not happy doing it. I got to be honest, if Jared has hears this, he'll have to just kind of grin and bear it. But I didn't, <laughs> I did not like doing the cartoon. I loved getting together with everybody. And I loved the being in that, in that, you know, in that group, because we love each other. We are really like a family. Yeah. But I was, I was, I was not happy uh, creatively at that time at all. I, I mean, I totally get that. I mean, especially they're ham maybe hamming up for the cartoon's sake. But, you know, on, on set of uh, Napoleon Di Dynamite originally, I mean, what was the vibe on set? Because, I mean, did, you, did everybody get, like, a sense that you guys, you know, this is going to be as special as it was or as well-received as it was going to be? Or, you know, what was that vibe like? Well, no, I think that, you know, like I said, I did call that woman on my second day that I was there. And I said, you know, this this movie could make a couple of million bucks. You know, I didn't think it was going to become the cultural icon that it did. I had no yeah. clue. I don't think any of us could foreshadow that. But I, I uh, but, you know, there was a, it was more like a summer camp. You know what I mean? It, it was yeah. almost like um, the best part of that movie was, kind of a, a, a dual experience was happening. The experience that, A, w we weren't aware of how great it was while we were doing it. And also while we were doing it, we were not really thinking about it because we were just doing it. And right. it, there was, it was, a, if that's not, I don't know if that's meta, but we were not at all aware of ourselves except by, playing the stakes you know at least as far as the actors and the, and the writing and the directing we we never wanted to ham it up as a comedy we were playing it for our own truths whatever those truths were at that time i mean you know when mm -hmm. when napoleon's angry he he's really angry but he's angry as that character you know yeah. <laughs> you know i mean and and so there were scenes that we played that nobody you know nobody was laughing when we were doing it, we were, we did, and we didn't expect, we weren't like looking around waiting for the laughter. We were just in right. it. You know what I mean? Exactly. Uh, exactly. Um, yeah, it so it's, uh, I mean, it was, but at the, at, to answer your question, we all had a wonderful time because it, it, we shot in Preston, Idaho and the sun went down at 10 PM and we were done shooting at six. So we'd go swimming or we'd go play basketball. It was like summer camp. <laughs> That's a, that's a, it's a blast. I mean, uh, and, and there's so many great scenes in that movie uh, and super quotable. Um, whether it was you uh, in front of the camera or you as a viewer, the, the final product of the film, did you have a, like a favorite moment or scene or, or experience that kind of sticks out to you the most? Or is it just kind of all, all together? I think the the. Um... I mean, there were, you know, there's, gosh, there's so many to mention. And, you know, you know me, I, you have to put a yeah. sock in my mouth. But, 
But I think that during the shooting, I think we've, you know, I've spoken to a lot of times, you know, John and Ephraim and I will go out and, and we've been doing screenings of the film and an audience comes and then we talk about it afterwards. So I know each of them, what their favorite moments were personally while the film was being made. I mean, I think the day that I arrived was the day that, the, that, that um, Kip and LaFonda were playing footsie under the oh. table. Okay. Yeah. So for me, just seeing that and knowing and, and, and seeing Jared Hess's confidence by saying, no, we don't need to have sound on this. This is going to have music over it. It's not going to, we're never, we're never going to hear the ambiance sound wow. that, that he had that vision already in, in his mind and that he knew exactly how this sequence was going to play out, that there was going to be music over it and that it was going to be, he was so clear about it that I think that was the day that I called. I think that it was the, that was the thing that made me call. Not necessarily the day that I called. It might have been the next day. But that was the thing that made me call UA and say, wow. I have something here that I think might be very, very interesting to you. And, amazing. You know, that, that's amazing. Um, and I want, I want to go into another one here. I mean, another one of my all-time, all-time favorite movies. Uh, and, is, uh, and was not a big hit when it came out, but Monster Squad. Right. Oh my! I mean, like, like I said, man, I've been a fan of yours for a long, long time. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I remember we we had Andre Gower on the show and, and Ryan Lambert. Um, oh, yeah. nice guys. Uh, we even had Steve Wayne, uh, who who designed the Gilman suit, and uh, I mean, did the whole movie's uh, magical. And, and at the time, it was just like this interesting take on these, like a modern twist on the classic Universal monsters. Uh huh. Um, what you know? How'd you get involved in this film? And and again, like when you like read the script, like. Uh, what what uh, attracted you to that? Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, first off, at that particular time in my career, it was never like, oh, I'm going to do this or no, I'm not going to do that. No, I mean, basically, I was doing everything that came my way. Uh, okay. you know? So, but I had just finished shooting um, the film. I did a, a couple of films after Napoleon Dynamite. One of them was Running Scared. Yeah. With Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines and Stephen Bauer and, and Joey Pantoliano, who I love. And, uh, and we, when that movie wrapped, Peter Hyams, who directed and, fo- and filmed that movie, produced, directed, and shot. You talk about wearing hats on one movie. Yeah. But he basically said, hey, I'm, I'm executive producing this movie, and I want you to be in it. And I was like, I wasn't going to say, let me read the script. I just said, Peter, whatever you want. Absolutely. I'll do whatever you want. Oh, okay. uh, so that was that. That was Monster Squad. That's how I got in. Wow. So basically, you know, uh, uh, poor uh, Fred Decker, uh, yeah. you know, got stuck with me. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I think he was ultimately okay with it. But, but I, you know, you know, you're you're directing your opus, and you know, the ex- executive producer tells you, yeah, this guy's going to be in your movie, and that's all. <laughs> that's it. I'm sure there was a part of him that was like, yeah, I don't want, I want to cast my own guy, but, but we got along really well and it was fun. It was a lot of fun to shoot. Uh, I didn't Uh, spend a lot of time with the rest of the cast because most of my stuff was completely independent of the rest of the cast, except for the finale, you know? Exactly. That's, that was the other thing. I mean, I mean, but I think the, the, the film does answer uh, this burning question once and for all is does Wolfman got nards? Yeah. So, 
<laughs> well, I, I, I didn't play the wolf, actual wolf. Yeah. I only played the, the desperate man turning into the wolf man. Exactly. In fact, I, I remember complaining about the guy who played the wolf man because I thought that he didn't, he didn't capture the nuance. You know, but he was a much bigger dude and he was a stunt guy and I, I wanted him to kind of, you know, I wanted him to be less like, like a, a monster at a scary, uh, at a, at a theme park. And I'm, <laughs> you know, I remember I was being a bit of a diva about it, but you know, whatever. Yeah. I, I hear you though. I mean, well, so much artistry goes into it. And, and I want to, I mean, ask you this part too. I mean, you've been in many, many amazing productions, um, you know, with like, on the side of the other side of things, writer, director, producer. I mean, you've done uh, things in this area too. What is that transition like for you? That that switch into that realm? Well, it certainly it it, it certainly has helped me and given me a greater appreciation for uh, that. How difficult? How really? I mean, I always knew that directing is is it you know directing is basically like being the dictator of a small principality, you know? Yeah. Directing a movie is or a TV show, but TV shows different because the producers are really the boss. But when you're on a movie and you're directing a movie, you know, everybody's there at your beck and call, but at the same time you have to be open. You have to be you have to be willing to uh adjust to certain things and certain and you have to know you have to pick your battles. You got to know what you fight for and what you allow, you know, okay. You know, I get, we can figure that out, but it is like, you're the leader of a country. You know, you have a, a yeah. group of people there and they're all basically waiting for your word. And, uh, and that's a big job. It's a, it's a tiring job, you know, but at the same yeah. time, it's an exhilarating job. You know, um, producing is a, is a thankless job as far as I'm concerned. It's a, it's a really it's you're never going to be the good guy. You're always going to be the bad guy <laughs> okay. whether it's from the director, whether it's from the actors, whomever it's from, you're always, uh, you're always the guy, you know, you, you can push it over to the unit unit production manager, the UPM and say, you tell them, no, I'm not going to say no, you tell them, no, they're going to go to you first. You're going to say no, then they're going to come to me and then I'm going to have to say no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> basically is really what it comes down to. And, and, you know, that's why when you hear of amazing producers who directors, uh, you know, basically align with and, and never want to deviate from that relationship, there's a reason because the best producers are so good. And yeah. I would never in a minute want to be considered, uh, I mean, I, I would never want to be considered a bad producer, but uh, the best way for me not to be considered a bad producer is just don't produce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> long, long story short. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I recognize everybody's needs at that time. And it's really, really hard to, you know, luckily I haven't been the main producer, but I, you know, I'll, I'll be the guy who will try and speak on behalf of the, of the director. or I'll be the guy trying to speak on behalf of the cast. And, um, invariably it's like, no, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to, I'm throwing up my hands and go, guy, I'm, I'm producing in name only. I'm not, I'm not going to get into this. I'm not going to get into this. I can't, can't fight this one. Yeah, I hear that, that's, a, that's so interesting. That side of it. And, you know, and I've always loved your, uh, your, your role choices, uh, you know, the process you choose, the acting choices within the project. And I, real quick for the listeners, 
I'm just real short. I'm going to uh, list off a couple of things here that goes right into a question. I mean, uh, you're Casey and Taken, one, two, and three, an amazing action suspense franchise. Uh, Dr. Roberts and Dream Corp LLC. Yes. Uh, you, you know, Ronnie Wingate and Get Shorty, Men in Black. I mean, you know, when a script comes your way, like what catches uh, your imagination? I, I'm sure you see good scripts, bad scripts, but what kind of in, inevitably inspires you to, to take that on? You know, I mean, the truth is like, look, I can give you the story of freaking Taken, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. basically they called and offered and said, we're going to send you to Paris for 15 days. And, you know, it's going to be not a great deal of money, but you get to go to Paris and we're putting you up in a really nice place and it's Europa Corp and it's Liam Neeson. And, you know, and then of course, then Leland Orser and David Wachowski come on board and it's like, oh my God, I love these guys. Oh man. And, and then, uh, and then we're sitting in the rehearsal room with Pierre Modell, who, by the way, is an amazing director who directed Taken One, who also yeah. did like, uh, Aaron Dolzman 13, which is an, a, a great oh. movie uh, that I strongly rec recommend. But, um, but so, uh, which is a French film, you know, and, and mm -hmm. Aaron, Dolzman, Aaron Dolzman, I can't pronounce it properly. Can you help me? But it's the it's sections of Paris, you know? Yes, yeah. They're sectioned and they're all called arrondissement. I, I, I'm probably getting that wrong, but somebody will correct. I'll, I'll, I'll fix that in post. Right? <laughs> yeah, but but um, uh, it, it's a great movie. But anyway, I remember Pierre Morel stepping out to go to the bathroom when we were rehearsing. Liam and uh, David Wachowski and L Leland Orser and Liam turned to us and said, "Fellas." just have a really good time with this. You know, he's like, this movie's going nowhere. It's going nowhere. It's gonna, <laughs> this movie's going straight to, to video and you might as well just enjoy. We'll have a, we'll just have a, we'll just have a good old time. And sure enough, he was right. The movie did go to blockbuster out here and, and, you know, in, in the U S but it became a monster hit in Paris and then in England and then wow. Italy and Germany and uh, Europa Corp pulled all of the, you know, they they were thought it was going straight to DVD or back then wow. video, and they pulled them, and and then released it in the theaters, and it became a hit in the theaters, and that led to two and three. But that was not what they intended. They intended just to kind of throw it out there on the into the blockbuster blockbuster bin, and wow. uh, and you know see what happens. It it totally changed when it became a hit in in Europe. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, who, yeah, again, you don't know. I yeah. and that's that's another reason why I love doing uh, this show is you get like the main you know things someone's known for, but all these other these behind the scenes and and by the way, I just I love it. You know, all the deep diving you're going is, is we love the footnotes too, the footnotes on the show and yeah. and uh, it's just amazing. I mean, like literally, you know, as I was researching this, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he was in Get Shorty, and I'm like, that was such a, a well written good movie. I yeah. I literally just rewatched it the other day. Uh, so it holds up so well, man. Yeah, well, I'll go to get shorty in a minute, but I, I can't miss talking about Dream Corp because oh, I think please, Dream, please Corp, Dream Corp LLC, and most people look at you're one of 16 people who've seen this show. The yeah. fact is, is that Adult Swim doesn't promote anything. I mean, their, their, rel their promotion is kind of relative, I'm going to say, to a college radio station, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. They don't. They really. They have a built-in audience, and they they rely on their audience, and their audience will find it. And you know, the truth is, 
I mean, I'm, this is tales out of school, but they didn't even want Rick and Morty to be a hit. They didn't want it to be a hit because they, they, they like to operate within the, in their little uh, community. And, you know, they don't want to have, I, I don't, I'm, I'm assuming now I'm, I'm projecting here, but I just think they don't want the burden of having a huge, huge responsibility of, you know, they'd like their niche market is a very solid very well-funded market and yeah and, and you know uh you know mike lazo who came up with adult swim is brilliant and you know now yeah. he's retired he's walked away uh, and of course anyway adult swim has been purchased by at&t because it's part of the oh. turner network thing so that's why we don't know if we're getting season four of dream corp llc but I can only say that it's probably it ranks up there with the probably the top two favorite things I've ever done. So I would oh, say Napoleon Dynamite, Real Genius, and Dream Corp are my trifecta of my three favorite uh, actual. Not to say experiences working, but they mm -hmm. are great experiences. But I'm saying just the content of these shows, what these oh, yeah. shows to me represent, the writing the uh the overall you know implied message and the kind of uh inferred message i mean there's other yeah. stuff there's layers to dream corp and i think people if they start watching the show they'll they'll recognize that that it's uh, it's it's a it's actually a deep show at the same time being a very funny show uh yeah. and and um and i just you know, I can't say enough about the cast. I mean, it's and and every time we have a guest star on that show, they a they they freaking love the show. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the fact that Thomas Middleditch actually called us and said, "Hey, yeah. <laughs> if you have a role, I'll be in your show." I mean, wow. You know, here he's doing Silicon Valley, and he's now got that other show that he was doing. Uh, the, uh, I don't know. It's a network show about a kidney. <laughs> I don't know yeah. anything else. Yet. <laughs> but. but but you know the fact that actors have actually you know J uh, Jimmy Simpson who amazing you know oh, yeah. from uh, Westworld and and uh, uh, gosh um, my mind just went blank but I, you know Mo Collins uh, yeah. this incredible people um, um, so um, I just think that the the show as I said to one of the executives at Adult Swim, when I went there in the in, to Atlanta just to to meet with them and talk about the show, and I said, "Look," and this was after first season one was done, and I said, "Even if you don't renew this show, this show is going to end up in a museum somewhere," and I believe <laughs> that about the show. And oh, yeah. and uh, Mark Prosh, who's also in uh, yeah, what we do in the shadows, right on FX. Uh, Nick Rutherford, who's amazing, who's now also a writer on on Rick and Morty. Uh, uh, Ahmed Barucha, incredible. Danny Stesson is the director of every episode, the writer, uh, oh, okay. over, overall writer. And, you know, when you have like Stephen Merchant, who's in every episode, oh, yeah. also is our executive producer, along with John Krasinski. It's, it's got an amazing uh, uh, pedigree. I mean, the fact that, I mean, it's an amazing show. Um, and again, um, it stands above the rest because there's, I mean, in this day and age, there's just so much content out there, yeah. uh, whether it's shows and then you start throwing YouTube and social media and all this stuff. And it definitely, it definitely stands out 
and it's not only uh, amazingly uh, it's super high quality well done, but also stands out as just unique and and um, there's more to chew on. You know what I mean? Like there's more uh, absolutely uh, substance to it. It's also, you know, look, we had a huge screening out here at the beginning of season two. We showed like five episodes and people, a lot of people came like Val Kilmer came and uh, a lot of uh, 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 people that I have known for years and that I respect. And they all had the same thing to say about it. They said, this is groundbreaking. This show is groundbreaking. It's so unique and so special. And it was lovely. It was, it was kind of our crowning moment because we had it at the Ace Theater downtown. It was pre-pandemic it was huge it was a lot of people and it was a standing ovation at the end of the five episodes wow. that we showed and you know each episode's only 15 minutes so it wasn't you know that long but um that's amazing but, but it was it was uh it, it's it's quite a great show now uh, you were saying you were talking oh get shorty yeah, and get shorty you know that you know you that book is incredible if you've if you've oh, ever yeah. And to Scott Frank's credit, you know, he wrote the screenplay, but he he took about took out like two thirds of the dialogue from he did wouldn't take the do, the dialogue from the book probably out of respect, you know. Right. Right. And um, Travolta was like, I I want that dialogue, and so oh, a lot yeah, of it, yes. a lot of it came back in. Elmore Leonard. Yeah. And, I mean, he's a legend. He's an absolute legend for that genre, and and so most of the dialogue you hear in that is Elmore Leonard. I mean, I would say a good portion of it anyway. Not most of it, but most of the real the, the real zingers. He's he's good with those. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah unbelievable author. Um, and you you know you have worked with Val Kilmer. You just mentioned him. Uh, uh, I actually also through the pandemic, I, I, I read his uh, book as well, which is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you worked with him several times, like Kill Me Again in '89, and yeah. um, you know what, what? What? And not to mention Real Genius. What was it like working with him? Because he also he doesn't just take on a role. I mean, he also deep dives and, and uh, very thought provoking, all ins and outs. Like you, very similar yes. um, to the approach. What, what's it like working with Bell? Well, it's always uh, it's it, it. You know, what is it they say? for people who play tennis, if you play tennis with someone who's got a good game, that your game will always come up, you know, that awesome. your game wow. gets raised. And so Val is that kind of guy. He, he's always uh, exactly the perfect phrase, deep dive. He really does. And, you know, sometimes Val has been, you know, he's been saddled with in the, in earlier in his career with being difficult and being, you know, unruly and all those other things. But you see, it's not really, I, I don't, I, having worked with him as much as I have, I know that he has a standard. Right. And, and unfortunately he's not, he offers no, he, he suffer he does not suffer people who can't, raised to the level particularly creative people directors and what have you when when he feels like they're not coming up to the standard that he imagines it to be i think that he he's not he doesn't he doesn't suffer he won't suffer fools so to speak interesting you know? um not to say that they're fools but but just to use that that cliche yeah. um he he has a he, he demands that that that, that uh, exactitude he he demands the detail and uh, and sometimes you know he he 
when we are working on roles and we're talking about them, he can almost become abstract. So I'll have to say, dude, you have to speak to me in real terms. I have, I need to, I've got to be able to feel it. Like I can feel your, you you know, like your heart or whatever. I can't, it can't be too cerebral and too abstract, very intelligent guy. And, 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 and sometimes he, he can really, you know, get out there and, which is amazing because it's inspiring at the same time. And so, uh, you know, a pleasure, a pleasure to, to be, friends for as long as I have been and a pleasure to, to have worked with him as much as I have. And of course, having directed him in three different screen tests uh, yes. or, co- or co-directed him in three different screen tests because he directs himself as well. But, you know, we did Goodfellas. We did it when it was called Wise Guy. I filmed him in New York City, all over New York City on film because I was shooting a lot of film and I was directing du- music videos then. And um, and then we sent it to Martin Scorsese with... Uh, <laughs> cut on film with a with the sound striped on it which was really amazing uh we we did one for kubrick for full metal jacket and then the last one we did was the doors and he got wow. the job and oh, uh, he, yeah he, he killed that role it was amazing amazing role he was in yeah he was meant to do it and you know there's something about val that you know a lot of people don't recognize or or, or a lot of actors don't understand and particularly actors how you know i was in new york once and 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 Val and I were we were hanging out, and I was at the time not doing financially really well, and I hadn't worked a lot, and I was out there working on uh, you know other stuff, music videos that didn't pay, and I remember I got a job for a TV show, or no, I got a call for an audition for a TV show, and I didn't get the message until after the appointment, you know, and I was like, well, that's that. I mean, you know, the appointment was at eleven, here it is two in the afternoon. I'm not that's that's done. And he goes, he just says, come on. He grabs me. We jump into a cab. We go to the appointment. He marches me and he goes, get in there and tell him you're here now. And so I did. And I went and I read and I got the job. (laughs) So Val and, and, and so Val was an absolute no for the doors. I mean, Oliver Stone, no. Carol Coe, no. Everybody was no about him. And Val you know, went and had pictures taken first with the wig because he hadn't, he didn't grow his hair. And then he met Paul Rothschild and paid him to go into the studio and basically mute Jim Morrison's voice on the Doors tracks so Val can sing the songs. Which was amazing. Which was amazing what he did. And then he contacted me. Then he sent those to Oliver Stone and Oliver Stone could not deny how good it was. And so he had a meeting with Val and said, look, you're going to need to put something visual together because these guys at Carol Co., which is now out of business, but they're not going to want you because he had, I think they had some indirect thing with Island, Island of Dr. Moreau and there were problems on set and oh, okay. legendary things that I had, I knew nothing about and I didn't care. And so yeah. I was cutting a music video and we, we ended up doing uh, that video, the, the, the audition for the doors and at one point, Val was trying to create the movie, and he was having all these people and all this shit. And I just pulled him aside. And I said, he goes, what do you think? What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? I said, get rid of everybody. Get everybody wow. out of here. I'm going to film you as, as Jim. That's all you have to do right now. And so we got rid of everybody. I put him in front of the microphone. I said, no wig, no, 
no accoutrement. I want you to just sing the song. And he did. And we put the music on in the background and he sang it on. And that was really the thing that Oliver said was what pushed it over. Oh, man, that's amazing. And, you know, you, you can't imagine anybody else doing it. And, and for you, they had that forethought just to really hone in on, on the essence of what the folks on there. That's unbelievable. Well, unbelievable. see, he was doing the acting at that point. You know, he was really concentrating on the acting. And, and I, I, and I, I, that's what I said to him. I just said, look, who's, you know, you're making this short film, but who's making the movie? It's not you. It's Oliver. You don't need to make the movie, but he's, he still included yeah. a lot of all of the, us as a group. He tried to get, he wanted me to play Robbie, you know, so he was trying to oh. get in his Robbie, but, and Oliver never knew that I was there overseeing everything. Oliver thought that I was just another schmuck trying to get a job. Okay. Oh, yeah. But that wasn't what I was doing at all. He, he had called me out of my editing room while I was cutting a video that I had to deliver. And I took two days off in a really intense schedule to spend time to put this together with him. And I wasn't really looking at it to play Robbie. I was looking at it to, to get this done right, you know, the way yeah. I was approaching my videos, you know. So, and he cut it together and he cut it beautifully. And you know, even though I never got credit for that, I still, he and I know, we both did it together. It was both of us. And I didn't need credit. I, I didn't care. I just wanted him to get the job. That That's unbelievable. This part of the show, I usually like to ask, like, you know, future plans, future goals. I mean, you got some acting and directing in the lineup here. Uh, so what, what what is that kind of your future goals overall for you, uh, Look. Well, right now, I, ju I just, uh, I have on July 11th coming out on HBO, an amazing show that I'm so freaking proud to be a part of called White Lotus, the White Lotus. Uh, it's Mike White's new series. And if you know who Mike White is, he did Enlighten yeah. Laura Dern on HBO and he yeah. was part of the, you know, the whole crew on uh, Nacho Libre and, and, and uh, School of Rock. He's an amazing talent, incredible talent in, he, uh, this is his new show, but it stars uh, Steve Zahn, Connie Britton, Murray Bartlett, Jennifer Coolidge. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. It's an amazing, an amazing Fred Hetchinger, uh, uh, Jake Lamb, an incredible, incredible cast, and uh, uh, Sydney Sweeney from uh, from Euphoria, and so Jennifer Coolidge and I kind of have a, a relationship and I'm working with a legend, you know, she's a legend. Oh yeah. She's an absolute legend. And you talk about somebody raising your game. You know, I basically showed up and said, Mike, I'm just going to get out of her way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's so great that I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go softly. I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, and I have a character and I'm good. And I, you know, I, I, I guess I'm, I, I mean, I, the relationship is good, I should say. It's not even a, you know, all that acting is, is anyways, relationships. And oh, uh, yeah. But this is a beautifully written and directed uh, six-episode show on HBO coming July 11th, The White Lotus. And Mike White is a freaking, you know, I know this, this phrase is used way too often. I'm not going to say genius. I'm going to say savant because oh. he wrote this thing. He, the way he wrote this thing and had this up and running in no time. I mean, literally started writing in August and by 
uh, October we were shooting. So it, wow. it's, it's incredible. That, that's that's unbelievable. Really looking out for that. Is there anything um, else coming up uh, project-wise well, you want to? I'm I'm you know I've got a couple of uh, scripts. One of them I'm trying desperately to get done. I've been working on it for a long time, uh, and I'm you know there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, um, and then I also have another one that I that I have written that I right now have a a guy who wants to produce. He wants to be attached as producer, and I'm just. I'm just, you know, vetting that because that's a hard, that's a hard call when you hand it over to somebody, you know? Oh yeah. And it's not for any say, you know, not for control or any of that kind of stuff. It's purely, I just want to know, you know, whenever, as anybody who does this, there are great producers at getting money, but there are, there, the guys who get the money are, are half the, the equation. It's the guys who can get you through production that's another, or I should say the money is a third getting through production is a third and the end game, which is the most important third. And that's always what, you, you know, anybody trying to make a movie, they should, you know, you would distribution and, and, and oh, yeah. platforming is really, really probably the most important, you know, it's oh, so interesting. And just getting that insight on all that. I always loved your acting choices and, and just your takes on the characters. I mean, there's a lot more to it than just, okay, this is a guy trying to recite lines right now. So much more into it. So I, I really appreciate your work, man. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the burden of, of the job we do. I mean, I think anybody, anything we do, you know, even doing what what you're doing, it it takes, you know, there's there's a, always a, a, a deeper thought process. And I think that it's a tribute to some of these amazing actors out there who, when they are working, they seem so simple and so real and you know you, you, you when you don't realize because i'm i'm I, as much as i'm an actor i'm also an audience member and i watch movies yeah. sometimes and go yeah this guy's just incredible he just th throws it out there like it's nothing and you know you don't consider what goes into actually you know doing it yeah it's so, it's so much so much more to it i mean even knowing that you had that, uh, like, especially getting into editing and things like that. I mentioned not just the the directing you're doing, but the music videos and things like that. Man, the it, what's the expression? It's like, uh, you know, as far you, you got you write the the film, TV show, or whatever. You write it, then you shoot it, and then the, the third thing, uh, writing oh, yeah. process, is the editing, right? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It's it, that's and that, and way back to one of your first questions about, you know, do you know that that it's going to be good well you don't you you don't because of that 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 so many multi-layered aspect of it i mean you know the rundown was a different movie when i got offered the job when i read oh, the script yeah. it was a way the character the the relationship between uh my character and 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 christopher walken the, their brothers you know uh yeah. the cornelius brothers are the hatcher brothers cornelius and harvey and yeah. and 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 they they start you know the studio before we're even shooting are worried that the rock is not going to be funny enough they don't know because he's never really they don't know him you know this was like the rock's first big film you know it, yeah it was Johnson. and so they didn't want the bad guys to be funnier than the good guys and so oh interesting there was an executive decision made at some big black tower in Universal City to, <laughs> to extricate 
the the funny thing, the exchanges between the two brothers. It was going to be amazing, and it would have only augmented. It would only have helped the project. But you see, there are a lot of times that you get too many, you know, particularly with studio films, you get too many cooks in the kitchen, and right. everybody's got an idea, and everybody's saying this, and people are putting in their two cents, sometimes just to be heard, to justify their salary or whatever it is. Right. And, and, and the fact is, you know, as Jack Benny used to say, I don't care who's funny on my show. Uh, th at the end of the day, they're all saying, did you see Jack Benny last night? I mean, yeah. it, <laughs> you want every bit of it. You, you, you want both barrels. You don't want one barrel. You want right. both barrels. You want to give it all. You, you know, let let it be funny. Let the bad guys be funny. Let the good guys be funny. I mean, and and the fact is, Dwayne Johnson and uh, Sean William Scott they yeah. were they were hilarious. Oh, they were yeah. amazing. There was an amazing tandem. That was an amazing you know buddy film. Those two guys, even though they weren't buddies, you know, right? Yeah, and, and Rosario Dawson and and Ewan Bremner, who was amazing in that movie, you know. Uh, and Walken was great, and and they they I think they did themselves a disservice by taking, which was an amazing script to begin with, which was originally called Hell Dorado, and Universal oh. Studios thought, well, we can't have Hell in the name, we're going to call it the, something else. Well, the truth is, Hell Dorado was a western in the fifties for crying out loud. I mean, <laughs> how conservative could you possibly be that you you're afraid to call a movie Hell Dorado in, in <laughs> two thousand and three? You know, but anyway, that just shows they 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 got in the way of that movie. That movie should have been a monster hit. That movie was. Oh, yeah. They 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 stubbed their own toe, and that's all. I'm going to say it out loud. It's all on the executives at, at Universal on that one because Peter yeah. Berg did a, a bang up job directing oh, that. One. It's such a good time. job. And another so yeah, beautiful. Go written. Yeah, go on. Yeah, another, another, yeah, another, you know, Peter Berg, another actor, you know, to director, yeah. uh, you know, famously. And I want to ask you that too. Um, you know, what would you say that, you know, in your experiences just dealing with people, uh, do you find that like whether people are trying to break into, acting or or just you know just fans and stuff what what would you say is kind of like the most you know, un underestimated or overlooked aspect of being a performer or actor uh that you you has come up the most you've seen oh there's just so many things i could say i mean i think the most important thing is uh is is be understand the work uh, understand the work, understand yeah. the humanity in the work, understand, uh, you know, even technically speaking. I mean, I taught a class at USC with a friend of mine, J James Savoka. He was teaching directing there. And oh. they, they gave him a class and he called me and he said, would you come? And I, I helped. And basically, uh, I realized I wasn't even thinking about the technical aspect of acting, just huh. the technical aspect alone you know, when people get on a set and they don't understand how it works technically, it, it, it's, it's a, a disservice to them. They should really understand how it works because it's always going to be a little different. Everything, every time the camera moves, things change, even though yeah. it's the same scene and it's the same intention and it's the same relationship, things change. And then those things are mostly technical and you have to understand 
how to to get with that and to flow with that even aside from just the the basic nature of acting in general i mean you know what goes into the emotion what goes into the relationships what yeah. goes into the circumstances and the actions and objectives and all those really important things uh you know not to mention you know accoutrements like uh, you know uh uh you know, character traits, character flaws, yes, things like that. All, all of those things. I mean, just understanding technically what to do. And I think nowadays yeah. people are more aware because we live in such a, you know, YouTube and all those things. I think people yeah. are practicing, and you know, their the cameras on their phones and so on and so forth. So they get to understand that that becomes you know, more of an axiom, uh, less of a, you know, kind of a, a hurdle. Uh, but, but it's important. It's very important. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I've worked with a lot of people who have been throughout their time difficult and, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of those people aren't working anymore. And I think that, the, you know, the idea of being a prima donna, uh, you, it might work with you for a while and it might work for you for a while. If you, even if you are, you know, if you excuse the expression, the shit, yeah. but, but the truth is it eventually will come tumbling down on you because we're all oh, yeah. just, we're all, if you think in terms of being on a team and that you're working with a team and that everybody's trying to everybody's trying to achieve the same goal. Everybody wants to be good at their job. Right. Everybody wants the work that, you know, you're doing when you're making a movie or doing a play or whatever. Everybody wants it to be the best that it could possibly be, you know? Right. Uh, so that if you understand that going in, then you know you're, you, you know, you're all on the same page. I like encouragement. Uh, you know, as an actor personally, I get along with a lot of people because when I get along with people, I feel like they're rooting for me. And when they're rooting for me, I'm going to get a hit, you know? That, that makes so much sense. Yeah, especially, yeah, everybody's on that, that same page with it. And, and also, John, I mean, I, I was like, I, I noticed this and, and spot it. Like, it, it is amazing that, you know, there's, you know, anybody can create something else. Like you said, there's a phone on every camera and a, a yeah. high-end high -end phone at that, right? That's right. Um, 4K. But, uh, yeah, yeah, 4K, baby. Uh, but, you know, the other thing that's interesting is, is – um, you know, again, not to knock, you know, I think people should try to express their creative voice, whatever that is, but it almost um, starts turning, whether it's film or just a quick video on, on social media, like it's, it's like a very sugary cereal compared to like a nourishing, super flavorful meal in many cases. You, you, you know well, what I'm saying? It depends. it depends. I mean, you know, I think that people who practice it will recognize how difficult it is to come up with good content, you mm -hmm. know? How difficult it is to really script something that's uh, not that that you know ha it's like um, what I call multi-layered chess. You know, it elevates it elevates uh, yeah uh, as much as it does uh, entertain. Uh, and I think that you know, I mean, even really what people would consider like when I first started watching that show Euphoria, I want just to use that show. Okay. I looked at that show and I thought, wow, this show, what's the reason? I mean, it's, you know, it's just a bunch of really good looking people doing yeah. really horrible things to each other and, and yeah. to themselves. And, but then as I started watching more, 
I realized that was the intent to allure you to uh, of the allure of the show that to lure you in and to then start to really give you a different kind of insight to really oh, okay yeah almost like you know the the show is itself the drug you go in and you think well this is like you know i mean this is all really beautifully shot it's very cinematic which automatically is going to draw me to it that's the first reason i like it and then afterwards i notice that the relationships are complex it's very dark and so that there's a part of that that i'm not really you know, as I've gotten yeah. older, I'm like less inclined to want to watch, you know, the, the taxi drivers of the world, but I used to love that stuff. But yeah, but then the message starts to come across and it talk, talks about humanity and it talks about sobriety because it's, of course, it's, it's right. drug, drug abuse and, 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 and human abuse. And then it talks about correcting these things, fixing that kind of stuff, which I, uh, I appreciate, I appreciate it. You know, that that's amazing, and and, and just kind of closing. Are, are there any like uh, you know just stories that you always wanted uh, to bring to light? You know, maybe even one day to take in production that just uh, never got around to. Like, is anything just kind of always interested you in doing? I mean, that just you know, that's a really good question. I mean, because I'm trying to scan the you know the, the the visage of what's left of my brain. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I you know, there's a lot of there's a lot. I mean, obviously, historical stories have always been very interesting to me. Oh, yeah. But I I think that some of the things we're living through and we have been living through are so incredibly fascinating now uh, yeah. that I, um, I don't know how to put it in terms of of. Uh, of of an of a of a of a you know like a parallel narrative so that you know like okay. I like J G Ballard you know like he was a great yeah. author he wrote a book called The Drowned World I think that book's kind of amazing and very prescient it it's not the most literate book it's 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 yeah kind of beautifully written as like a sci-fi book yeah but it, it's it's an amazing story because it's it's prescient in that he wrote this book, I think in the late seventies, early eighties. And it's about, uh, it's about the, the world becoming engulfed in, in water, you know, and right, it's, that's right. it's almost like a water world type thing, but it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's almost, it's very strange. It's kind of a odd mix of James Bond meets, <laughs> meets, uh, like, uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain elegance to it at the same time. Yeah. But it's like you know, it's England is a is a completely overwhelming tropic, you know, hot zone, and and most of England is wow. underwater. You know, it's and that's a, a revelation. You don't realize it's England that they're in. You think it's somewhere in you know in Indonesia or something. You know, and oh, and lo and behold, at one point when they're diving down, you're you know you're into Trafalgar Square and you're into you know, the tower of London and you're like, Oh my God. You know, <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds amazing. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And at the same time, it's, there's a lot that's that the book talks about, about the, what I call the, the humanity's clutch, our disservice to the world or humanity's clutch is right. anywhere you go, you just look and it's just like, wow, it's humanity's stranglehold on the environment and, and all the things that we should, 
we, we by our very nature should understand how important it is yeah that we preserve and take care of and and you know and not uh, equivocate about it we don't have time and we and that this book to me is pretty intense and uh, and yeah and i think timely because of where we are you know oh 100 percent. i mean man it, it's such a thought-provoking thing and and uh it, it really kind of tells you know like the narrative of yeah very applicable to today it is and and i think that also especially with the the extremism in all our politicization and not you know i mean like i i i get frustrated when i feel like you know there's there's this divide that's being fomented and it's not by the people it's being fomented by certain media certain things that that really are not there it's almost like the people all have to separate themselves and come together and go hey <laughs> Yeah. This yeah. Is not, this is not really uh, what it is. This is this is kind of a we're we're all being kind of led into something yes. that we don't under quite understand. And rather than react to it, let's all take a step back and just use our our deductive and inductive logic. We're we're all yeah. smart, you know, we're all very, very intelligent people. I think that when we get caught up in the emotion on the and I'm talking either oh, side. Yeah talking yeah. you know uh, i'm sp speaking from a very neutral ground that we need to allow ourselves to to go hey let's 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 what what are they telling us and w how much of this are we supposed to be really drinking with without uh, right. knowing what's what's in it what are the ingredients you know man that's such a, a thought provoking yeah i mean it's exactly it though. it's the truth of it, it there's is. so much just buying into whatever or yeah. Uh, or, or, or emotionally, you know, being emotionally uh, uh, driven on something is never. Well, that's you know. that you're absolutely right. And that's a very good point, Tom. I mean, they, they are putting that they're putting it, they're presenting it in a way that it is only going to be interpreted emotionally. And unfortunately, that's that's, you know, where, where we can be intelligent on one half of the brain. The emotional side of the brain is never usually quite as intelligent. It's, it usually tends to be the reactive, you know, the, the actual yeah. reactive side rather than like the considerable side, you know, that, I mean, it's like, you know, crime of passion comes from emotion, you know, it's not, right not certainly from our logic and from our, our, our ability to deduce what the fuck we're being told. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a great point, man. It's a great, great point. Yeah. Uh, and, and I always, that's, I think, you know, being attracted to books movies tv shows just stories you know there's there's some uh uh truth and lessons in a lot of those things that or you know artistically even music right? it, it tends to um invoke that i believe in a lot of people uh you know usually for the better of course but of course you know get, get people to think and and get outside of their own headspace and you know uh, whether you're empathy or or whatnot look at the situation yeah yeah, no, that's a really good point because the truth is, you know, uh, during any time that music and and art and or literature and any of these, uh, you know, these creative outlets uh, have their renaissance because there's many renaissances. Yeah, they, they usually do during periods of, of oppression or the periods of, you know, uh, uh, of 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 a difficulty where 
or where it's not necessarily direct oppression is almost too simplification but where where we are kind of you know i mean we're in an area in an era of cancel culture and things like that right oppression is becoming is becoming uh dangerous and that's a, a, a problem but at the same time I think that maybe out of that, I, I'm an optimist enough to think that out of that will flower, uh, obviously, better and more creative things. You know, it's just that that we we tend to we tend to uh, cower first before we actually say right. enough of I mean, this. I mean, isn't that like kind of throughout history? Like, you know, number one, a lot of people are history buffs, and and if you, you know, biggest thing with history is you know you should learn from it. And I mean, you even look at like ancient Rome and things like that, yeah. like, like, I mean, it was at the pinnacle of, you know, at that time, modern, you know, human civilization and, and, um, you know, you just, you know, how did, you know, the most interesting like history things on that isn't like the rise of Rome. It's like, how did, how do you go that high of a peak and then fall? And it's never like an overnight thing. It's never like one invading force. It's this like thing over time. They even like had a lot of stories of just how the, uh, different, uh, uh, group agreements they had started to wither away slowly and it became more, uh, uh, you know, hedonism and, and, and kind of getting into, you know, that side of things. And next thing they start losing as a culture, you know, who you are, that, that starts to thin things out. I mean, you ever, you know, look in that with like history and stuff and just kind of oh. compare it to modern times. And absolutely. I mean, you can, you can compare ancient history. I mean, certainly Rome is a perfect example because, I think that a lot of people equate the United States with Rome. You know, Rome got very, yeah. very aware of itself. It got, it referred almost to Roman exceptionalism the same way we talk about American exceptionalism. And yet at the same time, they were a, a, a conquering force that, that uh, you know, not dissimilar that in the past where we have taken it upon ourselves to go into places like Vietnam or to go into certain countries when we, when the question was why why are we doing this exactly i'm just trying to yeah. figure it out you know? <laughs> uh and and you know that 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 narrative that we it, it that's only cycling within our own world sometimes tends to take away perspective from the rest of the from from uh, of you from uh, of are your ability to reflect upon yourself the way the rest of the world is able to reflect on you when you yeah. are caught up in your own world. And it's kind of interesting was we were talking about certain celebrities or certain actors that sometimes get right. wrapped up in who they are and what they're doing and they put themselves in, in front of the work. Well, then, then they've lost perspective. You see, that's when, interesting. And, and so sometimes I think that we can spin ourselves into a, a, a false sense of, of our reality and what our our place is in the world and what our responsibility yeah. is about some of the things in the world and and I think that and and I'm not criticizing us for it as much as I'm saying thank God we have the intelligence to be able to and we will I believe right. again optimistically be able to get to a place where we'll stop and go we have to really think about these things we have to rethink this we have to rethink yes. this we can't just react because reacting doesn't doesn't get anything that's like you know that's like punch first and ask questions later we right. need to reverse that we got to like talk about it we got to learn to re-engage in the dialogue you know that that's amazing and uh and, and just to talk to the you know people the listeners that'll be listening to this guys that's the the mind 
inside the mind and workings of a, a phenomenal actor and artist in John Grise. I mean, it, it's it's not just oh here's a script. Okay, we block. Uh, we <laughs> you're we block. very kind. You're very I, generous. <laughs> I mean, for real. I mean, because I mean, yeah. There's so much more goes into it. Um, man, it, man, John, it's just been an absolute pleasure talking Thank with you. you. I'm so happy we got a chance to to yeah. get you on the show. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome, John. Well, thank you so much, man. I'll keep in touch. Okay, we'll be talking, okay? All right, you got it, man. All right, be well. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you all enjoyed the show. For more great interviews and content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Legends and Master Show. Also, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Be sure to go to our website, www.legendsandmastershow.com, and join our email list for all upcoming shows, events, and articles. See you on the next one.